That's OK. Oh, sorry, Emily. Is it your Bible? Don't worry. Great. Well, the, for the first time and the last time, good afternoon. I haven't said that before. Good afternoon. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You're still there. That's superb. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I don't know whether you were probably like millions of other people in this country watching the, uh, the telly the night of the famous Olympic Saturday. Um, I was there. We had a bit of a family gathering and... Uh, we were watching, you know, just, just longing to see those medals won and all those, that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, as Jessica came around that sort of final bend uh, of the 800 metres, um, our house went balmy, actually. It went completely balmy. I don't know if yours did. Uh, and all sorts of people were jumping up and down. Uh, and my, even my sort of wife, who, who is not the greatest sport watcher uh, in, in the world, sort of was, was heard to say, come on, girl, come on, girl, get there, get there, you know. And, and we were all getting excited. We said, yes, yes. And, oh, we were jump. Was I the only one who was doing that kind of stuff? Or were there others who, yeah, I guess most of you were doing that kind of stuff, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, and what we didn't do, what we didn't do at that point was as Jessica came around that final bend and, and she overtook, didn't she? And then she went for the line and we went, Yes, she's won it. Brilliant. Nobody turned to somebody else and said, and by the way, how high did she jump in the high jump? Or how far did she throw the discus or whatever she threw shot for, wasn't it? Because what we were concerned about was the victory. And all we were concerned at that point was that Jessica had won it and she'd won it well and she'd been brilliant. And yeah, all through those two days she'd performed superbly in, in those seven events which make up the heptathlon. But at that moment all we were cons- concerned about was the victory. She'd won. Fantastic. Great. Brilliant. And then we all did it again uh, when Mo Farah did the same thing, which was fantastic. Now, we've been through, guys, some... Pretty tricky water, I, I think, between us this week. And you've been brilliant, and you've asked me lots of questions, and some of it you've found hard to get, uh, and some of it's been you know, really hard to understand. Well, that's great. I'm glad about that. Because I hope this house party has not just been a sort of glitch in your life, that you've come and you've had a bit of Bible, more than you'd have other times. But I hope that it's kindled in you the idea that to study the Bible, to get to grips with the Bible, as I've had to do with this, I'm not going to tell you how many hours I've spent on it, but it's quite a few, and it's been a terrific blessing to me. And I've been studying the Bible for over 40 years. And I still love the times when I go into my study and I get my books out and I I look at the Bible and I pray, God, please reveal yourself to me through this Word of God. And, and I'm not tiring of it yet, and I'm getting ancient, as most of you can see by the way I play football. Uh, I'm not getting too ancient to, to actually love and enjoy it still. And I hope you guys will, will take something. Claire's been telling you about notes that you can have, and there are other notes, and there's your bookstore at, um, here, and, and do go over there. If you've got money, that's good that you pay it. Um, and there's a bookstall at church, and, and there's opportunities for you to study and read the Word of God, and, and you will not grow unless you do. So please don't sort of stop here and say, well, we got through the Bible bit just, uh, and now it's back to normal, it's back to real life. Real life is about reading the Bible. And, and I just want to encourage you that even though you found some of it, and I know you have, some of it quite hard... Um, to, to get to grips with this stuff, 
A study Bible would help you enormously if you've got a Christmas coming up, and most people have in a few months' time. Um, it would be superb if, you know, that was what you spent your pennies on that you got, if you got money or you told your mum and dad that you'd like a study Bible. And you'd learn hugely if you bought one. Uh, and those are the kind of things. Now, we're going to do today the, the final chapters. We're going to begin on this final thing. And we're, as we look at this end game, as it were, of Revelation, I'm going to go back into chapter 18 first. And this description of what we often call the final judgment is, is a great encouragement to me. Because of this, what kind of God um, w- would you think if God turned his back on justice? If God said that anybody who commits sin and wickedness and evil and all the things that, that go on in our world, and then he kind of said, well, that's fine. What sort of God is that? Or, or would you prefer a God who dealt with the forces of evil? So obvious in our world. And however much we may feel that this stuff that we're dealing with, particularly in chapter 18, is hard and, and almost vindictive. If there is no punishment, then wicked men get away with it. And that doesn't seem right, does it? And so... Uh, We look at chapter 18 and verse 1, and we saw another angel, it says, coming down from heaven, he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor, and with a mighty voice he proclaimed, he shouted, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. It's a great celebration because, if you just flip back with me to 17, chapter 17 and verse 1, Uh, And it says there, in in that particular verse, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Now, that is very acute and and harsh language. But that is another description of this Babylon. This is the climax now of the great destruction, the symbol of the world that follows Satan. Now, I told you that in first century days, that will be considered to be Rome. But when we read it, we must broaden that. Uh, And we must say... We must say today, any power or authority that refuses to bow the knee to the one true God comes under this description of Babylon, that great symbol. Don't know if you know, but Babylon was, until quite recently, a tell. A tell is a sort of mound of earth uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And it was a nothing place. Nobody went there. And it had been like that since the days it was destroyed uh, 400 years before Jesus. And and, um, a certain gentleman decided that he quite liked the idea of uh, being built up to Babylon again. So he built Babylon again, or a bit of it. That gentleman's name was Saddam Hussein. And he built some of the fortress of Babylon. You can see it if you go to the British Museum. You can see some of the things that were on the gates of Babylon, if you want to. Take Take time to go there sometime. And you can see the way it looked. And he actually made coins, Saddam Hussein, with his head on one side and Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, on the other side. As if to say, hey, look at me, guys. I'm a kind of big guy. Was that mine? Oh, it's okay, brother. I wasn't drawing attention to you. Um, So, um, John devotes a lot of this time to the event because it's important. It, It expresses to me what I've often felt. And, and I, I look at injustice in our world, and uh, if you can see with me, verse 2, 
it says, Fallen, she's become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Um, it, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's a description of... It, it's as if John's writing it as evil as it can be. And as I look at that, I just think of all the, the evil that's ever been in our world. I once saw a, a film... It was a fantastic, it's dated now, it doesn't work today. Um, but a guy called Jacob Bronowski, a Jewish man, um, did a, a long series and he called it The Ascent of Man. He described how man had, was creative and was able to do things. And he went to Auschwitz. And he went to the bottom where there's a big ash pit. And he picked up, I'll never ever forget this image as long as I live, and he picked up some of the ashes. And as he was on camera... He just opened up his fingers and he let those ashes fall. And he uttered a line something like, that could be one of my relations. And it was an image that kind of said to me, now there is wickedness, wickedness in our world, things that go on. And that's what this is on about. It's saying Babylon typifies, is, is the kind of name that gives us the idea of how terrible Babylon and how terrible evil is. And God is going to deal with it. God's people, it says in verse 4 and 5, another voice I heard from heaven, verse 4, come out from her, my people. Come away from it. Get out of there. And what God is saying here, he says, I know you've suffered. Look at it. You will not share in her sins, verse 4. You will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven. All the wickedness that's in our world and the places where wickedness has been done. It's surely no accident, is it? That what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to sin was called the fall. And this is called the fall of Babylon. So whereas sin came into the world and was called the fall, what we now have here is the falling of Babylon. Now, we can respond to this in all sorts of different ways. And I know Christians who are a bit like this, actually. They, they almost love um, to kind of, you know, gloat and say, oh, well, they get it coming to them. What do you expect? How terrible. They deserve everything they can get. And the Bible doesn't do that. It simply really tells us to leave it to God, but the punishment that's going to be dished out to them, verse 6, here we go, it's on there, they will be paid back double, verse 6, for what she has done. Babylon and evil, everything that is evil, is going to be really sorted by God. He's not going to allow them to get away with it. As much torture as the glory she gave herself. That's in verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. But then in verse 8 we read that in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death and mourning and famine. My friends, it is sufficient for you to know that God is going to deal with this wickedness. And you don't need to gloat you don't need to get involved. You don't need to add a bit to it. 
and say, oh, brilliant, they're getting hammered. God is going to deal with them. And you know what? Just as God is perfect in his love and his grace, he's also perfect in his justice. And what happens to Babylon, what happens to evil, is going to be just and fair and righteous. So you can come and ask me questions afterwards, but don't ask me the question that says, wasn't God being a bit hard here? No. If he was hard and he was overcooking it, then he's not God. And wickedness will be dealt with. And that's how it has to be. It's sufficient for us to know that God will vindicate us, his people. He will give us an inheritance. And that means that those who hurt you, those who do damage to you, uh, we're not in the business of getting back at them. We're not in the business of revenge. We're not in the business of getting back at the people who've hurt us and done us damage. I guess most of you can look back on your life and you can see places where folks have been cruel and nasty and horrible to you. And you've often sought ways in which you can get them back. That is not a godly attitude. It's not a, th- it's not a biblical way of doing things. It's not something we should be involved in. So don't gloat. It is mine to avenge. Deuteronomy 32:35. I will repay, God says. I don't need your help. I don't need there anything to be done. Now, this has bigger consequences. We can go on to the next one, Gareth, if we could. Um, it's scope. Look at what goes on here. There's, there's all sorts of stuff that goes with this. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, in other words, they were in league with Babylon, and shared her luxury, they see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. And then we get a whole list of things and people that will suffer. The merchants who dealt with Babylon. The people who prospered as at the expense of probably people. They, they won't have any more cargoes to shift. And then if you go on a little bit further, you see in 17, you see all the sea captains who travelled and traded with Babylon. All the people that prospered on the back of this evil will, won't be able to do it anymore. Because we read in, in verse 21 of chapter 18, then a mighty angel, I love this, it's fantastic writing, A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And a little line that comes at the end, verse 23, there won't be any more weddings. Stick that in your memory box because we're going to need it in a minute. There won't be anything else on her blood was the, prophet, the blood of the prophets and the saints and all that have been killed. My friends, the smoke is rising from Babylon. But be hopeful. The end is in sight. Come with me into chapter 19. And after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Can you imagine, as John wrote this to his poor people... Um, who were suffering and struggling and, and all the things that were going wrong and all the, um, the, the stuff they were facing in terms of cruelty and, and loss of jobs and loss of family and all that kind of stuff, to know that in the end that evil will be sorted. A great roar from heaven. Look at it, verse 2. Salvation, verse 1b first, salvation and glory and power belong to our God 
for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned, here's that line again from 17.1, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. They praise God. The smoke is going up. The smoke rising from judgment. God is doing what he promised to do. Now, we talked a little bit earlier, didn't we, in the week about praise and our ability to praise and and our ability to worship. But here we have it. If you get stuck one day and you can't do it, turn up Revelation 19 and have a little read of it. Go somewhere quiet and, and have a look. After I heard, I heard this great sound from heaven, this great sound of God's people. Hallelujah. Praise God. Brilliant. We all got so excited about the Olympics, didn't we? And, and I did too. I, I was totally addicted, totally addicted. I became a couch potato. I, I, I was known when my wife spoke to me not to respond, uh, which is the cardinal sin, as any husband knows. Uh, you, do not re- you do that you, when your wife says, would you like a cup of tea, darling? You're supposed to nod, say yes, or do something. But th- there were occasions when I was so engrossed. Do you know what I thought? Wouldn't it be amazing if we got even more excited about our God. And we were able, as these people do here, once they know that that wickedness has been destroyed, and God is the winner, as I told you earlier in the week, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are spot on, verse 2, he's condemned, and he's going to do it absolutely spot on and right. The relief is huge, because... God has kept his word. And Babylon the great is fallen. And all God's people give thanks and praise. The one who is, who was and forever will be is on the throne. As we met him, do you remember in chapter 4? When the elders, as we were reminded earlier, were gathered around. And they were all sat there and they were rejoicing. Guys, God will never be kicked off his throne. God will be on the throne forever and ever and ever. That will never, ever change. God cannot be dethroned. Satan comes along with all these things, all these beasts we've been looking at, all the rubbish that's come up that through Revelation that John said would happen to believers. Uh, that, that will come to an end. Satan will be defeated. We're going to see that just as we finish this afternoon. That there's, there's going to be an end to it. And I'm going to sit there, and I hope you are, and we're going to sit around the throne, and we're going to rejoice, and we're going to be active. One or two people have asked me that. I don't think we're going to sit there getting glorious Welsh harps all day. Um, you know, as nice as Welsh harps are, I'm sure they're lovely instruments. Um, but we're not going to sit on fluffy clouds playing harps. Now, some may have that gift, and bless you if you have, um, then carry on doing it. But heaven is an active place. It's full of life. It's full of vigor. It's around the throne. It's around God. It's in the presence of Christ. Do you think that's going to be dull? What are you thinking? You're in the presence of the living God, who by his word like that breathed creation into life. Let there be light. You try it. Walk into a room. Don't touch the light switch and say, let there be light. See how you get on. So if you can make something from nothing, that's how creation is defined. 
If you want the posh Latin phrase, ex nihilo, from nothing. God said, let there be, and there was. Giraffes, lions, trees, clouds, whatever. That's the God you're going to be with. And do you think that's going to be dull? Get off. Don't give me that stuff. It's going to be amazing to be in the presence of the living God who knows all there is to know. I've got a lot of questions for him. Like some of you guys have had a lot of questions for me. Brilliant. We'll have a chance to talk, to be with him, to dwell forever in the presence of the Lamb who died and was slain and whose blood was shed that I might have life in all its fullness. If you don't get excited about it, well, tough. Because I'm going to be. And I'm probably going to get there before you do. And I'm going to have a ball and long to see you. Won't it be wonderful? In the presence of the Lamb to know that finally evil is beaten. And then I heard, verse 6, a sound like a great multitude, like the rushing of waters and the loud peals of thunder. And again we get the same thing. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. What's the wedding of the Lamb? I'm going to go all gushy and silly now. You may not like it, but I'm going to do it just for a minute. Because I can remember, you see, some of you married men, you really boring old married men, um, and I was at your wedding, sir, so I think you did it as well. But when you stood there, you know, your best man's right here. You're here and your best man's there, right? And, and uh, the music that you know is coming strikes up and you turn around. And I'm not afraid to admit, my jaw went, because oh, I'd, I'd never quite seen her look like that before. Uh, I'd seen her in jeans, I'd seen her in all sorts of gear but I had never seen my wife in a wedding dress. And I had a soft, gooey moment. I've had one or two since, not many, but just occasionally. Um, you know, and I looked round, and there was this incredibly beautiful person who I loved coming down the aisle to marry me. Now that's the picture. The bride ready for a wedding. The wedding of the Lamb has come And the bride has made herself ready. Now, what's all that about? Well, it's about God preparing his church. And here's this fine linen thing again that Joe and I have both mentioned. Here is the church. The church that can so easily fall out with each other. You never do that at Forward Youth Club, do you? No, you never have Barneys and arguments and you know, fallings out and tears and I hate her, I hate him, why doesn't he do that? We, we never do that stuff, do we, at Forward? Because we're a perfect church, aren't we? Yeah. Rubbish. Don't give me that. Um, if it's anything like my church, we do it, we fall out. Now, look what's going to happen. God is preparing his church and we will appear as in beautiful white linen, just as a bride, adorned for her husband. For the church... God's people to be united with the Jesus who saved. Oh, great, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Are you just moderately excited? Could you show by just a gentle smile? That would be nice. Thank you very much. Um, I, I hope you are. I really hope you are. And you are invited. It says it there in verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those 
who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words. That's the marriage of the Lamb. The bride has made herself ready. The church that has suffered and that has been through pain. I went to Romania. I still keep going to Romania. And one day we went to a a little place called Garjan, which is up in the mountains of Romania. And uh, I went up there and um, we sat in this room. It was the only room in the house. And I met this dear old man. uh, And he made cocoa and it was tepid. And, and I said, Lord, this cocoa is under your control. If this does anything to me, uh, I'll live with it. But it looked dodgy, this cocoa. And then this dear old man, this dear, dear old man, he was in his 70s then, he's dead now, he's with the Lord. He recounted what it was like with the biggest smile on his face to be a Christian in the days of Ceausescu. And he talked about how when, I haven't got a radiator here, oh, I know, I looked, should have looked for it. When he was in prison, in solitary confinement, and there were other Christians along solitary confinement row, they communicated with, with each other by tapping messages on the radiator pipes. And that is how what we now call the Romanian Evangelical Alliance, the sort of gathering together of all the Christians in Romania, was born on radiator pipes in Bucharest prison as they tapped out little messages to each other. And with a great smile on his face, and he'd been in prison for something like 25, I think, to 30 years, simply for being a believer. He talked of his forgiveness and his love for those who were his captors. I found that a deeply humbling evening. This dear, dear old man, his face kind of gnarled with the suffering that he'd been through, telling me how wonderful God was and how gracious he'd been to watch over him through that time. I'll be there with him. He will be, as it were, part of the group of people dressed in white. And I will be with him forever. And that is so fantastic. So uh, what we have here is, is this lovely picture of dressed in white. It's a beautiful picture. And uh, remember Sardis, Joe mentioned it, didn't he, when we did it, the walk of those who will overcome will be dressed in white. And the greatest righteous act, the fact that Christ died on the cross, means that our robes are washed and clean with the blood of the Lamb. Oh, friends, get a hold of this, will you? Get a hold of this idea. Because it's going to go on, it's going to get even better. Because now we have... The next one, please, if you would. King Jesus. What do we get? Chapter 19, verse 11. I love this bit. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me uh, was a white horse. And uh, what's that about? Well, it's King Jesus, whose rider is called Faithful and True, it says, doesn't it? With justice he judges and he makes wars. His eyes. Here is Jesus the King. Eyes blazing like fire, it says. God's justice, God's wrath, perfect justice is meted out. And the coming of the Son of Man, the the Messiah figure, the Saviour figure, here he is on his horse. He's dressed in robe, in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. See why the Word of God is so important? That's the name of Jesus. And in verse 14, we get that picture of the armies of heaven following him. And out of his mouth comes that judgment sword with which to strike down the nations. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just think back on how you've seen Jesus in the Bible. You've seen a little baby in Bethlehem. You've seen a 12-year-old in the temple. You've seen a man walking around. You've seen him on the cross. You've seen him risen from the dead. Now you see him as he truly is. King of kings and Lord of lords. And just to wrap this all up, and I want to get on tomorrow morning just briefly before we all go home to look at um, some other stuff with you. Look what happens in verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war. Do you remember that beast that came out of the sea? Here he is. And what happens? The two of them were thrown, verse 20, into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of those who'd gathered around him are killed by the sword. My friends, this is awesome stuff. But these beasts and these false prophets do not get away with it. God judges them. Back the winner, my friends. Back the winner. Because when we go on, and after this period of a thousand years, if you really want to talk millennialism with me, do grab a coffee after this session. I'll, ha- I'll happily do it with you. But I don't want to major on it now because I want to go on to verse 7 of chapter 20. When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from prison. What happens then? And the devil, verse 10, chapter 20, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. The Satan that tempted you to sin, that is his end. The Satan who's trying at this moment to lead you astray, to make you deny your faith, to make you wander away from the truth of God, to be disobedient to God, will end up in permanent torment. He will not be annihilated. That's not what the lake of sulfur means. He will live in this state of permanent separation from God. Now, if you think hell's fun, I said this earlier, I'm going to say it again. If you think hell's about, you know, getting yourself a pair of horns on Halloween night and having a bit of fun and a bit of a party and a bit of a laugh, then what I can suggest to you is that those kind of do's have some element of good in them somewhere, maybe. Hell has no good in it whatsoever. It is all bad. It is all ugly. It's not fun. It's not a great big party. It is a place completely devoid of goodness. And Satan is thrown there. And the dead are judged. And they come before. And just to finally finish, verse 15... If anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a very straightforward question, isn't it? Is your name in the book of life? It is there because you have submitted your life to Christ as Saviour and Lord. That's the criteria. If that's where you are, that is where you'll be. If not you will be put in a place which is as far away from God as you can be.
and it's awful. But then, chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And verse 3 tells us it's the place where God dwells. But that's for tomorrow. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for anybody who is harboring a grudge, an anger, a desire to get back at somebody. Perhaps an anger about what goes on in our world. Why do men fly aeroplanes into tall buildings in New York? Why do famines hit nations? Why do tornadoes hit the United States and wreck many people's houses? Why does that happen, Lord? If you have that sort of question, will you just be content, please? Will I be and you be? with the fact that in the end, God will judge and sort that and we don't need to worry about it. Because God's justice is perfect and this world which is imperfect will be wrapped up. Babylon is fallen in the end. And God's people, the 144,000, the perfect number, the gathered people of God will be together around the throne with the elders and we will sing our hearts out, rejoicing in the Lamb who was slain and whose blood was shed. And teach us that this awesome end to those who would seek to drag those away from Christ, the false prophets, the beasts, the Satan himself. They are dealt with by God's justice, which is pure and perfect. And we need not intervene, we need not get involved. Because he will do it. The important thing is whether you will be in the place where God dwells. In the great city of the new Jerusalem. I pray that if there's anybody here today who's still not sure about that. That before we get on those buses tomorrow morning. They will take a moment not to do anything else. Because there's nothing more important than this like playing games or doing seminars or eating food or anything that compares to the importance of knowing that your name is written in the book of life. And I pray that if that is not the case, any person in that situation will bow the knee and say, yes, Lord. Because it's impossible to say, no, Lord. That is a contradiction. So please enable us to be humble enough to admit that life lived around me as centre is both selfish and wrong. Life lived around the living Christ is what it should be all about. Give us that humility, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.